Thanks. Open your Bibles, please, to the book of 2 Corinthians, chapter 11. We're going to read together there. If you have your Bibles, uh, follow along. We'll read these verses, but we'll also refer back to them several times. And if you're watching online, we're glad to have you with us. I'll put these verses on the screen, but I'd love for you to follow along for yourself and see what God's Word has to say. Next Sunday, we'll take the Lord's Supper together in our Sunday morning service. That's always a very special time for us, and I hope you can join us next Sunday as we do that in the morning worship services. Well, let's open our Bibles, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. I want to read the first four verses with you. Let's read that together. The Bible says, I wish you would put up with a little foolishness from me. Yes, you do put up with me. For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, because I have promised you in marriage to one husband to, pre to present a pure virgin to Christ. But I fear that, as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your minds may be seduced from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if a person comes and preaches another Jesus, whom we did not preach, or you receive a different spirit, which you had not received, or a different gospel, which you had not accepted, you put up with it splendidly. Well, the Bible talks here about the concept of, of a godly jealousy, what Paul calls here godly jealousy, and I want to talk with you a little bit about that because it's a, uh, an important concept for us to get. And I, I learned a little bit about uh, jealousy. I was with some of my grandchildren this week. I was in Texas. Where my daughter was expecting a child, and, and uh, she had the baby actually uh, early this morning. So I, had a, I came back yesterday, but I got to be with my other grandchildren. And they had their sixth child, all of them girls. So uh, pray for them. If my son-in-law happens to be watching online, uh, Jason, I just want to say, build more bathrooms. That's the word I have for you, let me tell you. Well, we got to play with the grandkids. That's kind of the main thing we did as we were waiting for the baby to come and, you know, pass a due date and such. And so I was, uh, one day we are in the, at the park. It was a pretty nice day, a little cool, and the kids were out playing at the park, all the older five girls, and um, Vicky got a little bit chilly, and so she said, I'll go wait in the car. I'd rented a car, you know, I'd flown in. Vicky had gone earlier to be there with them, and, and uh, I flew in, rented a car, drove straight from the airport, drove there, you know, just be there if the baby had come in a timely fashion, and so I uh, said, great, and so she went to get in the rental car and she sat down for a little bit to get warm and she noticed there, she was sitting there for a while, she noticed some Altoids and she thought to herself, why would Doug get Altoids? I mean, I know they're curiously strong and everything, but why would you just stop, you know, straight from the airport, straight here, why would he stop to get Altoids? And then she looked around and she said, you know, there's a lot of stuff in this rental car. Yeah, she got in the wrong car. <laughs> she got in the wrong car. Well, I want to talk with you about godly jealousy this morning. And, and I noticed that with our grandchildren, how often they would, like, um, they'd say, how come she got an extra chip or how come she got an extra cookie? And so when we talk about godly jealousy, we put it in our own framework and we think of it like that. I don't, I heard Oprah Winfrey, of all people, say one time she gave up sort of on the traditional ideas of Christianity in some ways because of this concept. She was listening to the preacher, and he said something like, 
uh, the attributes of God, God is, and he describes several attributes of God, and then she's, he said, God is a jealous God, and she said to herself, well, if God's a jealous God, I don't want a jealous God. And she missed this simple concept. It's not that God is petty. God's not a petty God. Many times our jealousy is, the, is like that. How come they got another cookie? How come they got another cracker? It's that God is exclusive. That God is exclusive. And he's saying you can't have other gods and, other, and idols and worship other things. And God is, in that sense, the human word we use, jealousy, describes who God is. And Paul is saying here to the church of Corinth, I have a godly jealousy for you. And he's saying, the Holy Spirit saying to us in our generation, God has a jealousy for us and, the, and a godly jealousy. And so I want to note three principles of godly jealousy with you. And if you would write these down, if you're a note taker, would you write these three principles down? Number one, would you note godly jealousy wants faithful commitment, wants faithful commitment. Verse one says, I wish you would put, a, put up with a little foolishness from me. Some of you will say this verse applies to me. I wish you would put up a little foolishness from me. Yes, you do put up with me. Maybe you feel that way sometimes. But verse two says, for I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. Paul's saying, man, I, I want something better for you. I want something greater for you. Because I have promised you, he says in verse 2, notice this, because I've promised you in marriage to one husband to present a pure virgin to Christ. Now, the Bible describes the church as the bride of Christ. And this means the church, this is something big. This is a great analogy for us. May I say parenthetically, the church is important. The local church matters. We live in a generation that says the local church isn't that big a deal. Even many who name the name of Christ say church is not that big a deal. It doesn't really matter that much. It's not that big a thing. And may I say that if you have that view, and undoubtedly we're affected by our world, if you have that view, the church isn't that important, doesn't really matter that much, may I say that comes more from the culture. It's not coming from Scripture. Because God's word says to us, the church is the bride of Christ. A bride's not a small thing in a wedding, right? It's not a small thing. And the Bible's describing that to us. And God is saying here, I want a faithful commitment from you. So Vicki and I married more than 40 years ago now. I still remember that day. It was a wonderful day. We were so excited about it. Vicki was uh, the beautiful bride. We were excited about starting this new phase of our lives together. But what if, on that day, what if Vicky had said to me, listen, Doug, I mean, I still want to marry you, but I'd like to marry some other guys too. And I brought some other guys, and they're just going to, you know, we don't want to have to rent the church several times, and so I brought some other guys, and we're just going to, if that's all right with you. Now listen, I'm old-fashioned enough, that would not have been all right with me. You haven't been so affected by our world yet, have you? That that would be all right with you, right? I mean, that's still like, I mean, I know our culture has changed some ideas pretty radically. But that's still not all right with you, is it? And here's what the Bible is saying. Paul's saying, I promised you in marriage to one husband to present a, to present a pure virgin to Christ. So strong language that Paul uses here. We could summarize it by saying this. God wants a faithful, exclusive arrangement with you as Savior and Lord. God wants a faithful, exclusive arrangement with you as Savior and Lord. He uses words like jealous and promised you. I promised you, Paul said. 
And he said, I promise you to one husband to present you a pure virgin to Christ. He's saying God wants a faithful, exclusive arrangement with you as Savior and Lord. It's personal to God. Just like my wedding was personal with, for me. It's personal to the Lord. God wants this personal relationship with you as Savior. And God wants a personal relationship with you as Lord. So let me note four things that it means. When we say Jesus is Lord, it means these four things at least. First, it means he is fully Lord. Not partially Lord. Not like a smorgasbord. I don't know if they even have smorgasbords anymore. That's where you get to pick and choose what you want at the cafeteria type approach. I'll, I'll, I'll take this, but I don't want the broccoli or the beets look like they've been out a long time. I'll, I'll ignore those. And people say that about the things of God. He'll be Lord of some things in my life, just not everything. And I'll pick and choose what I want him to be Lord of. But when we say Jesus is Lord, we're saying he is fully Lord. When we say Jesus is Lord, it means he is always Lord. Always Lord. Like, not just on Sunday. I'm glad you would give the Lord a Sunday. It's a great thing. The Bible tells us to forsake not the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some. It does matter. But he's still Lord tonight and Saturday night and Monday at work and Tuesday at school. And the Lord wants to be Lord fully and always Lord. And then when we say Jesus is Lord, it means he is specifically Lord. Not just Lord of what you want him to have, but the specifics of your life. I wonder if you have said something like this. Sometimes I, I've done sort of this in my own life. I've said, God, I'm give, you can be Lord of all of that. That, 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 that. You can be Lord of all of that, but not this. And whatever it is, this, the thing that you want to keep for yourself. I'm going to let you have that, 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 but not this. And the Lord always cares about the this. So whatever it is in your life that you've said, Lord, I'm going to let you be everything but every, all of that. But whatever you've said, this, this is the one, I'm going to keep this. That's the thing God always puts his finger on. That's the thing God is always pointing to. That's the thing God is always working on because he wants, he cares about the specifics of our lives. Because he cares about you. Because he loves you. Because he wants what's right and best and good for you. He will point out in your life the things that are specifically not, that you're not giving to him as Lord. Because when we say Jesus is Lord, we're saying he is fully Lord and he is always Lord and he's specifically Lord and he is the only Lord. The Old Testament talked often about the danger of idolatry. God told us not to have any other gods before him, not any, no, no idolatry. The Old Testament filled with that. But I'll just tell you, the idea of idolatry is not just an Old Testament idea. And in this generation, maybe in your own life, we have this tendency, we don't tend to make like idols out of wood and stone and gold anymore it's more subtle in some ways but idols nonetheless idols nonetheless the things we put ahead of god the things that take preeminence in our lives the thing that captures our attention and our focus and our thinking and our plans and so the bible is saying godly jealousy wants faithful commitment there's a god who loves you and he wants that kind of love from you so Principle number one, God, godly jealousy wants faithful commitment. Principle number two, godly jealousy fears cunning deception. We're going to see a little of the danger of deception here. Paul says in verse three, but I fear that. So he's saying, I made a, I've promised you as a church, I've said, you're, you're betrothed to the Lord himself. You're the bride of Christ, but I have a fear. And he describes it in verse three. I fear that as the serpent deceived Eve 
by his cunning, your minds may be seduced from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. So Paul makes a description here of the story of Adam and Eve and this, this danger or this seduction. So we're to be the bride of Christ, but we have this danger of seduction just as Eve, the first bride, did as well. Let's go back to the book of Genesis. If you'd like to follow, I'll just read it out loud if you'd just like to listen. But I'm going to go back to Genesis chapter 3 and to the story of Adam and Eve in the garden. I'll just read those first six verses of Genesis chapter 3. The Bible says, Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. And we know from other contexts, of course, this is, the, uh, this is Satan in the form of a serpent in the Garden of Eden. And he said to the woman, Did God really say, which by the way is a, a starting place so often for deception. Did God really say, the enemy whispers this in your ear, did God really say, I mean, does God really know what he's talking about? Did he really mean it when he said that? Isn't that sort of old-fashioned? Did God really say, you can't eat from any tree in the garden? Verse 2, the woman said to the serpent, well, we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit in the, of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. So she points out that there's a problem here because God said you're not supposed to do this. Notice how the how Satan responds, verse 4. No, you will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened. And you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And the enemy loves to kind of put just enough truth to really spin that lie well. You'll know some things about good and evil you don't know right now, that's for sure. Your eyes will be opened in a way they haven't been opened before, that's for sure. And so verse 6 says, the woman saw that the tree was good for food. Man, it'll satisfy, she thought. Delightful to look at. It's going to, man, it's going to make, it's going to be pleasurable and joyful. And that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. Man, it'll fill the desires of my life. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. By the way, he's not absolved at all of his own sin and his own actions. And so the Bible is telling us about this deception that takes place and Eve says well it's going to be good for food it's going to be delightful to look at it's going to be desirable for wisdom it's going to be great here's what here's what the deception is at its heart is this it's saying there is something better than God's way there's something better than God's way listen many Christians many Christians many churches many lives have been ruined by this God's I know what God says but and I know what God wants, but there's a better way than God's way. There's a better way. And I'm going to find a better The culture says there's a better way. It's going to be more fun. It's going to fulfill what I want. It's going to please me. It's going to fill the desires of my eyes and my heart. And there's a better way. And I, I tell you, I, I've, I've watched this enough. I've lived long enough. Maybe you, maybe you have too. To know the truth of this is not, it's not going to be fulfilling. Sin's not going to like work out great. The seduction is not going to lead to joy and meaning, and it's going to lead to brokenness and pain and heartbreak and death and destruction. Man, Satan is a great marketer, but he does not mind lying to you at all. He doesn't mind deceiving you in any way that you'll allow him to. 
And he's, he's going to sell you that lie. Some of you have heard him whispering in your ear. It's a better way than God's way. And the world's way is better. If you follow this path, you're going to have a greater time. It's going to be, it's going to be more wonderful. Listen, God is just old-fashioned. You know, he just, the cosmic killjoy, that's what God is. He just, he, just, he just knows that sin would be so much fun and pleasure. And man, he whispers that. Did God really say? Some of you have heard that well. And so you've heard that seduction. But here's what God wants. The Bible says it in verse 3. I fear that as the serpent deceives Eve by his cunning, your minds may be seduced from a, here, here's what God's looking for, a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Listen, that's how God loves you. Sincere and pure devotion. When you trust Christ as Savior, God adopts you into his family. He loves you fully, completely, and absolutely. Did you know, Christian, if you know Christ as Savior, you are as forgiven of your sins as anyone in all the world has ever been forgiven of their sins. And you are as loved by God as anyone in all the world is loved by God. God loves you as much as anyone in all the world has ever, has ever been loved. That's how God loves you. It's a sincere and pure devotion, and that's what God wants from you. That's the love that the bridegroom gives to you. That's the love that he wants the church to give to him, that kind of sincere and pure devotion. And so beware this cunning deception because the enemy is, man, he's been doing this for a long time and he's really good at it and he knows how to deceive and twist and turn. Did God really say, doesn't God really want to keep you from what's better because God's way, man, there's something better than God's way. Listen, that lie has been told so many times. God has something so much better for you. The enemy's way is leading to death and pain and sorrow and brokenness and hurt and deception and blindness. And God loves you so much that he warns you about this seduction. There's a third principle I want you to get with me this morning. Godly jealousy warns of truth compromised. It warns of truth compromised. And let's go to verse 4. The Bible says, for if a person comes and preaches another Jesus, and by the way, we'll see more about this as the chapter unfolds, people who are really misleading uh, the church and the church willingly. I mean, they're, they're obviously involved in being misled. If a person comes and preaches another Jesus whom we did not preach, or you receive a different spirit which you had not received, or a different gospel which you had not accepted, you put up with it splendidly. He's saying, church man, you're willing to, be, to have the truth compromised. You, you willingly follow the falsehood. And I want, you to, I want to warn you about this danger, he's saying. So let's talk about these three aspects of truth compromise. The first is another Jesus. If any person comes and preaches another Jesus whom we did not preach. Paul preached the truth of Jesus. He preached the Jesus as described in God's word. He preached the Jesus as he is. Not the Jesus that culture wants him to be. Not the Jesus maybe you want him to be, but the Jesus who is. God gives us his word to describe the truth of who he is, and he shows us the person of Jesus. Many people want Jesus to be, in our day, it's a very common thing to be just a good man, to be a good man. Moral, of course, a good example, maybe a good teacher. C.S. Lewis, the great author, said this, that's the one option we don't have. We can't just call him a good man. Jesus said, 
he made claims like being one with the Father and the only way by which we can reach God and the only way that we can be forgiven of sin. And he claimed to be the Savior of the world. He claimed to be the light of the world. And C.S. Lewis said, either he's lying to us, you can read the pages of the, of the Bible for yourself. You can read the words of Jesus and decide if he's lying or telling the truth. Or he's crazy. He thinks he is the Son of God. He thinks he is the Savior, but he's just crazy. You can read the pages of the Bible yourself. I believe them to be the most sane thoughts uh, of anyone who's ever lived, but you can read about the words of Jesus for yourself. Or he's, or he is the Lord. He's either one of those three things. But what he can't be, Lewis said, is just a good man or just a good teacher. And may I just tell you, what we need is not just a good man, not just an example, not just a good teacher. We need the God who became a man. That's what we need. We need the God who would love us so much that he would break into this world and live among us. We need the one who would pay the debt of sin on our behalf. That's what we need. We need the way maker, the miracle worker, the promise keeper, the light in the darkness. That's the Jesus we need. We need the Jesus of the Bible, not the Jesus of our culture that wants to sort of tame him down, make him a little less radical, you know, make him a little more... Uh, a little more efficient for their ideas or thoughts, maybe, maybe not so honest, maybe not so bold, maybe not so direct, maybe not so spiritual, maybe it's not so exclusive, but we need the Jesus who is. We need the one who would pay the debts of our sin. We need the one who would come into this world on our behalf. We need the way maker, the miracle worker, the promise keeper, the light in the darkness. And then the Bible talks about the different spirit, this danger of truth compromised, a different spirit. Paul said, if a person comes and preaches another Jesus whom we did not preach, or you receive a different spirit which, we, which you had not received. Now, some people say this different spirit is just talking about a different attitude. I think it's more likely talking about the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit. The Bible says that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's the nature of God, that God is and always has been and always will be and always is. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God with three ways of being, that's his very nature. That God the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit does works. God the Holy Spirit convicts. If you don't know Christ as Savior, the Holy Spirit convicts you of your need for the Lord. He convicts you of sin and righteousness. If you're a believer, he convicts you when you do wrong. The Holy Spirit convicts you of your need to follow him. The Holy Spirit indwells us. God the Holy Spirit lives in us. God's not just there somewhere out there, not just somewhere. God is in us as believers. God lives in us everywhere we go. God goes with us. God the Holy Spirit indwells us. God the Holy Spirit empowers us. He doesn't just say live the Christian life. Good luck with that. He empowers us to live the life he has for us. He empowers us to witness for him. He empowers us to serve him. God the Holy Spirit guides us. He shows us how we should live and what we should do and where we should go. This is what God the Holy Spirit does. And so we don't ignore the Holy Spirit. We recognize that the Holy Spirit matters. God, in his sovereignty, placed the Holy Spirit in us for a reason. And we have the access uh, to God through the person of the Holy Spirit. And how thankful I am for the Holy Spirit who reminds us of the truth and points us to God's word and helps us to see who God is. But then the Bible talks about a different gospel. Paul said, or a different gospel which you had not accepted. So let's talk about that different gospel. 
Let's talk about what the gospel isn't for a moment, what it isn't. The gospel isn't just uh, try harder, man, try harder. That's how many people see the gospel. They say, just try harder. They think the message of the Christian faith is just try harder. Like a coach says, suck it up, man, suck it up. I know you're tired, suck it up. It's following the, I follow the Illinois sports and the University of Illinois and the Illinois basketball coach after a loss said to his guys, said, you've got you to see this like a, like a parking lot fight at a pizza hut. That's what you've got to see. You've got to suck it up and you've got to try harder and you've got to work harder. And many people say, okay, that's what Christianity is about. You just got to work harder. You've got to try harder. You've got to do better. You know what the Bible is saying to us in the message of the gospel? You can't suck it up. You can't. Can you improve? Yes. I've got some things I'd like you to improve in. I bet you have some areas of your life I'd be happy to tell you you ought to improve in certain areas of your life. I'm sure you do. And can you self-improve? Yes. But you can't self-improve your way beyond your past. What if you could be perfect from here on out and never sin again? You've already sinned. You're already broken. You already need a Savior. We can't, we can't suck it up. The point of the gospel is we can't work our way to heaven. I think many people have mistakenly thought the way to reach heaven is to work hard enough and do enough good things. The Bible says we're saved by grace through faith. And that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So God is the one who saves us by his goodness, not ours. We can't be good enough. We're all broken. We all fall short. All of us. We all, all of us, we all fall short. None of us can reach heaven, heaven in our own merit. None of us can be perfect in our own merit. It's not religion. And I'm, listen, I do religious activities, but it comes out of my faith, not, not in replacement of my faith. So let's talk about what the gospel is. The gospel is God in heaven knows that we're broken. He knows that. He knows that we've sinned. Every one of us, since the days of Adam and Eve, every one of us have gone down this same path. We're born with a bent towards sin, and every one of us has sinned against God who is holy. And yet God loved us despite that, cared about our sinful condition, and did something that we couldn't do ourselves. God became a man and lived among us. And Jesus lived the perfect life. None of us lived the perfect life. All of us have sinned. But Jesus lived the perfect life we couldn't. And he was therefore worthy to die the death we deserved. Jesus died in my place on that cross. He died for your sins on that cross. Jesus took your place. He paid your debt. And Jesus provided the miracle that we need. He rose from the dead and he conquered the power of death and the power of sin. So that the Bible says if we will trust Christ, not ourselves, not our goodness, not our hard work, but if we will trust Christ, if we will repent of our sins and place our faith in Jesus who died for us and rose from the grave for us, if we will receive him as Savior, he'll save us. And he'll give us hope and meaning and purpose. That's the gospel. And we build our faith not on, our, not on ourselves, not on our goodness, not on our hard work, not even on our religion. We build it upon the Savior himself who took our place on that cross. And upon the Holy Spirit who convicts us of sin and righteousness and then lives in us when we give our life to Christ. And the Jesus who is, as the Bible describes him, God who became a man. And who died for us. The miracle worker. And Paul said, man, I'm jealous for you. 
a godly jealousy. But instead of wasting your life chasing a thousand lords in your life, that you'll recognize Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. And you'll live that out fully. Would you bow with me for a word of prayer? As we pray, there's some of you here, I don't doubt there's someone here who needs to be saved. And God brought you here. God allowed you to hear this message so that you would trust Christ as Savior. And the Holy Spirit convicts you. If he's convicting you now that you're a sinner who needs to be saved, he does that so that you'll see your need for the Lord. And today, if you will repent of your sins and trust Christ as Savior, he will save you. And you could pray a prayer giving your life to Christ. Now, I'm just saying words I say won't change anything, but if from your heart you want to pray a prayer, something like, Lord, I know I've sinned against you, but I believe you died for me and rose from the grave for me. I know I'm a sinner who needs a Savior. And I will give my life to you this day. Christ will save you. Christian, I wonder if the Holy Spirit isn't speaking to your life about that concept, Jesus is Lord. Not just sort of Lord or sometimes Lord or partial Lord, but that he's Lord. I wonder if he isn't reminding you today that he's promised you to one husband, a pure virgin to Christ. Our purity will be found in Christ alone. He's the one who forgives us, but he forgives perfectly. But he has a purpose for us. And saying Jesus is Lord means he is Lord. And today, won't you say, I want... I want to live that out. I want to live the, con the confession of my faith out and not just know that you are Lord in theory, but to live it out in reality, in practicality in my life. Father, I want to thank you for the power of your word. I want to thank you for this reminder to the church at Corinth long ago, this reminder to us this day, this reminder to our church, this reminder to our lives individually, Lord, that you are Lord I pray, Lord, for people who need to be saved, that you'll draw them to yourself and for believers to follow you and live for you. And I thank you that we can know the truth that sets us free and that you give us the word for this very reason and for the hope that provides for us. Help us to live out our faith in Jesus' name, we pray. Amen.